Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you, Sophia, for reading the scripture for us this morning. At City on a Hill, we have a a desire to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural church. And one of the ways we do that is through celebrating the diversity of languages and cultures uh, that represent our congregation. And so often we will read uh, scripture or sing songs in different languages. So thank you again, Sophia, for for doing that this morning. Um, Here at City on a Hill, we have uh, three values. Those values are the gospel, community, and mission. Those are the values that undergird who we are as a church. And the gospel is the good Good news that Jesus gave his life for us, that um, through the work of Christ, um, we can have a relationship with God. Um, secondly, is community, that we live in light of that good news, and we live our lives around Jesus, and we believe that lives centered around Jesus together in community is where real change happens. And then lastly, mission, that um, this good news is too good to keep to ourselves. So we declare that good news to others, as well as it changing the way that we live in order to make our neighborhood and our city a better place. And so a couple of announcements before we jump into the word this morning. Again, you can fill out that connect card um, and and that's a great way to get connected to a community group. Community groups are where the life of the church happens. And so it's not too late to get signed up. Again, fill out uh, that connect card and we can get you uh, uh, information on a group. And then also uh, we have a politics course going on right now. We are in one of the most contentious points in in, uh, our recent history in our country politically. And we as Christians need to know and understand how do we engage as Christians Christians when it comes to politics, both on a national level as well as on a local level. And so it's not too late to sign up for that class on Monday nights. You can do so by going to coforesthills.org slash events or just fill out a connect card. Uh, This morning, we're continuing our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And we are in week three of weekly services as a church. Um, It is incredibly exciting to to be doing this each week. And um, and so we wanted to kind of give you a vision over this first uh, series of of, uh, sermons the type of church we want to be and what better way than to look at the words of Jesus, the very first teaching, the largest um, section of Jesus's teaching. And what Jesus is doing is he's giving us um, a vision uh, for what the flourishing life looks like. This is Jesus's vision for the life that you and I are called to live. And so at the beginning of this, it starts with a promise. It doesn't start with a bunch of to-dos. Jesus says there's this promise. He said, blessed are. So um, this this is not an if-then thing. If you do this, then you'll be blessed. He's saying this is a statement of what it means to be blessed. This is a promise, not a process, not commands. And he says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are um, those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. And Jesus is offering the kingdom to all the wrong people. We imagine a kingdom being offered to the powerful. We imagine it being offered to the influential and the wealthy and those who never have anything seem to go wrong in their lives. But Jesus has said that this kingdom of his is upside down and that anyone can get in on this. So it started with a, with, with a promise and then it shifted last week to the idea of people. And so Jesus said this new promise, this new flourishing life is going to be lived and spread through a new people with a new identity who are living as disciples as salt and light. And so as salt and light, they're preserving decay 
this decaying world that we live in, as well as revealing as the light of the world what is broken and what is beautiful, showing the world as it really is. And then here in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, we come to one of two peaks in the Sermon on the Mount. The other peak of this mountain is the Lord's Prayer. We're going to look at that in a few weeks. But today, we're looking at this idea of what do we do with the law. See, up to this point, Jesus has not told us what to do. He's not given us a set of rules. And we are people who tend to like rules. And so there are two reactions to rules. There's there's kind of the irreligious reaction, which is it's kind of like that old Little Caesars commercial. There's this, I'm not going to demonstrate this, I promise, but there's this Little Caesars commercial about a $5 one-topping pizza. And this guy walks in and he goes to rip his shirt off and he says, there are no rules. And then someone yells out from the kitchen, there put your shirt back on. He goes, okay, there are some rules. Some of us want to imagine and say, okay, I I, want to know what the rules are so I can break them. They're like that child who you tell to do something and they're just going to do the opposite. And so if if you don't know that child, you are that child, just type the name, actually don't type the name of the person in the chat. But so we, we either tend to want to do that or we want to tend to know all the rules so that we can follow them. Just give me steps one through five so I know what to do. And if I can do steps one through five, then I'm good to go. Jesus answers the question that everybody, the people who are listening and us are asking, what do we do? What about the law? And it's wonderful as Jesus does this because Jesus knows our hearts. It's incredible. You see this throughout the gospels that Jesus would would look at someone and he would know what was on their mind. And what that does is it tells us that we can go to God with our struggles and our questions because he already knows what's going on inside of us. And he's not afraid of it. He wants us to come to him. See, the law, according to Jesus, is how God's people know and enjoy him. The Bible is how God's people know him. We know God through his word. And so how does the Sermon on the Mount work with the law? Well, Jesus says that we still need it. We still need the law for a couple of reasons. We need the law because ultimately the Bible is all about Jesus. The entire Bible, including the Old Testament, are all about Jesus. We, we often think, well, maybe it's just the New Testament. I just need to look at the New Testament because that's where Jesus is, and I, I want to be with Jesus. And, and, and for some people, they, they say we don't need it. And then this, this goes back almost as far back as Christianity itself. You go all the way back to the second century, uh, there was a heretic named Marcion who said that the Old Testament God was a God of wrath and a God of judgment. And the New Testament God is Jesus, who's a God of love and of grace and of mercy. And that these two gods cannot possibly be the same God. So we just need to jettison the Old Testament and just focus on the New Testament. And the way that heresies tend to work is we, they just tend to get repackaged. That same old heresy has been pulled into modern times. There are modern famous preachers that you can watch who will say that we just need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament anymore. We downplay it. But Jesus's words are, do not think. In other words, it's not possible. Do not think that I've come to abolish or to do away with the law or the prophets. The law is, is kind of shorthand for what, we, what the Jews would call the Torah. This is the first five books of the Bible. These were the books that, that Moses wrote, um, and they were incredibly important to the people of Israel, and they were highly regarded as, 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 their, as, a, as, as their, their holy word. 
And the prophets is really shorthand for the rest of the Bible. And so the pro- what would be often shorthand for or called the prophets would be the actual prophets, you know, like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. And then minor prophets, not minor prophets because they're lesser, but minor because they're shorter, um, so, such as Amos or Hosea. And then wisdom literature, which would be books like the Psalms or Proverbs. And so basically the law and the prophets is a way of saying the entire Old Testament, Jesus is saying that you can't do away with any of this. He said, I did not come to abolish it. He's almost like saying, are you crazy? Why would I do that? Why would I do away with our story? Why would I do away with the faithfulness of God? The word of God is how we know God. And when we look at the, old, the Bible, and particularly old, the Old Testament, it's not just a set of rules and regulations. The Old Testament gets a really bad rap for being just a bunch of, of rules that we are called to follow, but it's actually the story of God and his people. We see this all the way back in Genesis 1, that there was nothing and then there was something, that God created all things out of nothing. He created a world and then he created people to fill that world. And then as he created people, he called a special people. He called Abraham and said, through you and your family, I'm going to make a nation that blesses all nations. We see that family end up in slavery, that nation end up in slavery in Egypt and then be rescued and redeemed. And God calls them to the promised land. And we see this happen all the way through their exile. And this story at the very beginning was, was transmitted orally. They would tell these stories over and over again. And, and luckily, the Hebrew people were incre- had incredible memories. They, 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 were, they were really keyed in on making sure that they transmitted the story accurately. And so they were written down. And these were the things that were told around campfires. These were the things that were told at night to children, reminding them of God's faithfulness. These were the things that were, were sung about in songs and psalms as they would go all the way up to Jerusalem for, uh, to sacrifice at festivals. God's word tells you who he is and what he expects. And Jesus says, not one iota of that story, not one part, one dot, the iota being the smallest letter of their alphabet, not one dot, not like, like dotting and not a bit of that is going to pass away. Not even the smallest amount is going to be ignored because Jesus, just like a good Hebrew, loved the law. Tim Keller talks about how Jesus loved the law. He said, he, Jesus, quotes the Old Testament constantly. He faces every joy. He faces every conflict. He faces every danger. He faces every temptation, quoting the word of God. But our problems with the Bible are most often problems with the Old Testament. Because we look at the Old Testament and we see some of the most fascinating stories, but also some of the most difficult stories. We see some of the most miraculous, but also the most puzzling things. And the reason I think we struggle sometimes with understanding and believing and trusting the Old Testament is that we read it wrong. We often read the Old Testament like it's a string of tweets and we disconnect these. We take words and we take phrases and we take stories out of their intended context we forget that what a lot of what we read in the Old Testament is a narrative. It's, it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. And so you may have a question, you may have a struggle and, in, in, in you know, something against the Bible where you're like, well, what about all the polygamy or all the abuse that we see in the Old Testament? What about the injustice? That's not God saying, go do these things. That's God not hiding the messy stuff of what it means to be human. 
And in fact, every time you see this brokenness, every instance, if you, if you follow the track record of the story long enough, you notice that it always leads to pain. It always leads to suffering, that that was not the flourishing life that God intended. The Old Testament records what God expects from his people. And what we see through this story is that they fail again and again and again. We, we can't jettison ourselves from that because there's also this thread that runs through the entire Old Testament that someone better is coming, that someone is coming who's not going to fail. There's one who's coming who's better. And, and Moses himself actually says this in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And, and what it's saying, and you see this theme that runs throughout the entire Old Testament, is there is a perfect prophet who's going to come, who's going to speak to you and tell you the words that you need to hear. There's a perfect priest who's coming who will be the one who will mediate between God and man and, and make a sacrifice that is once and for all. And there's a perfect king who will reign forever. And what Jesus is saying is that is me. Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment of this law, that the entire Old Testament points to Jesus, that it culminates in Jesus, is fulfilled by him. So every promise, every command, every warning, every joy we see in the Bible is pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. And we see that how this happens in the law and the prophets. The law, again, is a story, but it also has rules. So when we think of of rules in the in the Old Testament, the first thing we often probably think about are the Ten Commandments. All these commandments about how we relate to God and others. And so, you know, commandments like, you know, you shouldn't make idols and you should you know, honor your father and mother and not commit murder and not steal. And so there are those 10, but there's also 603 other commandments in the Bible, in the Old Testament. A total of 613, 248 positives and 365 negatives are things you're told not to do. So one for every single day. Jesus does every single one of them perfectly. But it's not just the rules. Jesus is also the fulfillment of prophecy. We see throughout the Bible that there are over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfills in his life, his death, and his resurrection. But let's just for, you know, for time's sake, because I don't have time to unpack all 300 of those for you. Let's think about eight. There, there are eight things that Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, like where he lived, um, his, his birth, the way that his death occurred, his resurrection. Uh, eight, if, if, a, if someone were to fulfill eight prophecies about the Messiah, we would say that's pretty impressive, right? Well, it's probably more impressive than you think. Uh, mathematics and astronomy, astronomy professor Peter Stoner um, has made the statement that the chances of one person fulfilling eight prophecies like the ones we see in the Bible, uh, those things coming true just by chance is one in 10 to the 17th power. In other words, one in 10 with 17 zeros behind it. He said the probability of this would be like covering the entire state of Texas, which is over 268,000 square miles with silver dollars two feet high, and then blindfolding Matt and sending him through the state of Texas and expecting him on the first try to find the one coin that I've marked with an X. 
So imagine doing that with 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. But fulfillment is more than just predictions. It's that all history, all things are finding their hope, finding their fulfillment, finding their consummation in Jesus. That all of God's word points here. So if you remove any of this, if you remove anything from the Old Testament, you're removing the glory that Jesus deserves. You're removing something that we need to see, something that we need to enjoy, something that we need to be convicted over, something we need to turn from. That's why you can't just pick and choose what you want from the Bible. You can't take a little bit from here and then mix it with other religions that you like because Jesus is saying, all of this is about me. All of this is about Jesus. And only Jesus has the authority to do this and only because only a person who has authority could say something like, truly, I say to you. That word truly uh, is, is literally amen or amen, which, which when translated means as the Lord wills or thus says the Lord. This is why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people who heard this were astonished because Jesus spoke as one with authority, one who could speak and who could tell us what the word really means. And so since Jesus can tell us what the word really means and what the law really says, secondly, Jesus changes how we relate to the law. Jesus, he doesn't abandon the law, uh, the law. he doesn't do away with it, but he reframes it. He, he changes the way that we relate to it. And when we see this, we see that there's something here for both the irreligious person, the person who doesn't want to follow any rules, and the religious person who thinks that they're accepted because of what they do. See, the religion, the religious people hear what Jesus says here about how, you know, none, none of this is going to pass away. And they're like, ha, I told you, see all of you licentious people, I told you that you need to follow the rules. And they're partly right. You know, irreligious people treat Jesus like the cool substitute. You know, everybody had that cool substitute in, in high school who they, they, you had a stack of work from the teacher, but they would just kind of hide it and pretend that they didn't see it. I mean, that's kind of what we think of Jesus like if you're irreligious when it comes to the law. He's just saying, don't worry about all that. You're, you're okay with me. I won't tell, I won't tell the real teacher. Like, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says not one bit of this is going to pass away. But also Jesus ups the game on the religious people too. At the beginning of verse 19, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, I know and love the law more than any of you who call yourselves religious. See, both the religious person and the irreligious person have a very low view of of God's word. They minimize it. And so whether you try to just do a set of rules to make yourself right with God, or you just try to bend the rules to what you want, you have a low view of God. The irreligious person may say, look, it's too hard. It's too much. I just, I'm not even going to try. I'm going to ignore it. I'll bend it and twist it and take what I like and use this part. But the religious person ends up doing the same thing because that person just lowers the bar. And they boil down a relationship to, with God to a couple of mechanical if-thens. If I do this, then I'm accepted. I mean, in fact, Pharisees would actually count the number of steps they could take on the Sabbath before it was considered a sin. They're both missing it. 
they're both missing and they both have a low view of the scripture. So what is Jesus doing by setting the bar so high? He's showing us that none of us can actually do it. Whether you're trying really hard or you're not trying at all, none of us can meet the standard of the law. If you take the law, if you take the Bible seriously, if you take it as it is and you don't try to twist it or shift it or change it or make it a set of rules that you can do on your own, if you look at it with the depth that it requires, you realize you just can't do it. You're, you're incapable of doing it. And what Jesus says is because you're incapable of doing it, he does it for you. He fulfills the law for you. He fulfills the law for us. It's so high and it's so unattainable that no one can do it, but only the one who perfectly knows and loves God. And that is Jesus. And so through Jesus, we are given all the promises that we see in the Old Testament. All the promises of the Bible are ours in Christ. The law is accomplished. None of this is going to pass away until it is accomplished. It's accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is how it changes how you and I relate to the law when we trust Christ. Here's what happens. The law becomes a mirror, not a picture. See, before Jesus, the law is the picture of what you need to be and what you need to do in order to be acceptable to God. But when the gospel comes into view, what happens is it becomes a mirror. It shows you ex exactly as you are. And so it's, instead of saying, look like this, it says, this is what you look like. We've probably all seen uh, a high definition makeup mirror. So it's a mirror with a bright LED light around it. And, and that, that mirror shows everything. You know, look, we can put on, you know, Instagram filters and we can change lighting and we can touch things up with Photoshop, but a high definition mirror shows you exactly as you are. It shows every blemish, every mark, every imperfection. The law is like that high definition mirror because what it does is it shows you the depth of the sinfulness of your heart and how you do not match up to God's holy standard. But here's what it also does. It shows you how Jesus has done that on your behalf. It shows you the depth of your sin, but also the beauty of the gospel. And as the African uh, church father, uh, Augustine said over 1600 years ago, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask the help of grace. See, the law becomes a friend because it shows us the depth of our sin and our need for Jesus and the remedy and the resolution that we have in Christ. We see the law with new eyes. And what happens is as you, when you have the gospel as your lens, you can look back at the Old Testament and all you see is Jesus. And he gets the glory because every story and every word and every command are no longer a weight upon your shoulders. They're no longer something condemning you and telling you that you don't belong, but there's something you can rejoice in because Jesus has done that for you. We rejoice and we boast in the cross. We rejoice and we boast in the resurrection because it is ours. We can't see anything else. It's like the old movie, Sixth Sense. I'm gonna ruin this movie. It's over 20 years old. But in the Sixth Sense, 
there's a boy who sees dead people. You've at least seen the meme about this. And what, and in this movie, there's, there's Bruce Willis in this movie. And he's talking to Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis is, is, is shocked that he sees dead people. Well, at the end of the movie, you find out that Bruce Willis has been dead the entire time. And that's why the boy can see him. And so as he looks at and then you start to think back on the movie and there's all of these details that make you realize, oh my goodness, that's what was going on there. Now that we know the, how the end works in the gospel, we can now look back at the Old Testament and see that it has always been pointing forward to Jesus. And we see everything in a new light. See, the gospel is, is this third way between religion, which says, I do, therefore God loves me, and irreligion, which says, I do it my way. So, so, so which one of these do you tend toward? Do you, do you tend toward religion or do you tend toward irreligion? But lastly, it's not about behavior, it's about your heart. It's not about behavior, it's about your heart. In verse 20, uh, here's where Jesus really begins to dig in. He's digging in on, on those who think they can keep the rules and please God on their own. See, verse 19 is not a call to get everything together. It's not a call to be on your P's and your Q's and be the best that you possibly can at following the rules. And Jesus dismantles that by saying that your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. These guys were like the league champs of following the rules. They were the absolute best. So how do you have a righteousness that exceeds theirs? See, this call to exceed is to a greater righteousness, a righteousness that goes beyond just the letter of the law, that goes beyond just doing the right thing. It's about wholeheartedness. See, God's desire in his redemptive story of the Bible is that there would be a people who would have wholehearted faithfulness to him, and they would follow God's will and they would live in with the kingdom of God in view. And this has always been the way that we should see the law. Not the letter, but, but that God is going after your heart. It's, it, he wants your motives. He, he wants the posture of your heart toward him to be humble, that you're trusting him to have control. He said this all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter six. It says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It's about your heart. But let's say that you could do all 613 commands of the Bible. Can you do them perfectly? Can you never miss? And here's what Jesus says. Okay, well, maybe you could do all those, but can you do them with wholeheartedness? Can you do them and never doubt? Can you do them and there never be a moment where you, you doubt or your mind strays or you fail to trust? You can't say that. No one can. No one can say that they faithfully and wholeheartedly follow God with everything that they have. And over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna apply what this looks like, this greater righteousness, this, this heart posture towards God in areas like anger and lust and our words and love but today we're going to look at this idea of how Jesus goes deeper and he invites you to this flourishing life, the good life. And the news that by yourself, you don't have the heart that God requires to live it. But he wants you to have it. How does Jesus give you a new heart? By fulfilling the law for you. There, there are two ways to fulfill a law. You can fulfill a law by obeying it 
or you can fulfill a law by paying the penalty of that law. So imagine, you know, it's like running a stoplight, or as I like to call driving in Boston. Okay, that's just that's what we do here. And so imagine you, you run a stoplight here in Boston, and there's a cop watching. For, that, for, there, for it to be just, you, you either have to stop at the stoplight, or you have to pay the penalty for failing to do so. Jesus fulfilled the law both ways. He, he obeyed with wholehearted desire. He, he lived out a just life he, uh, of love and of mercy and of compassion and, of, and integrity. He, he paid the penalty on our behalf. He died in our place and he did what the law demands to pardon us of our sins. And in doing so, he fulfills the law. He fulfills the old covenant. It passes, it's fulfilled, it's accomplished. And then there's a new covenant. What did Jesus say about this new covenant? He said in Jeremiah 31 that it would be new, that it would be different. And then in verse 33 of of Jeremiah 31, he says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This has always been the plan. This is how we flourish. This is how we enjoy God, that we would obey. And he gives us a heart that wants to obey, this learning to obey. This is why European and Latin soccer players will always be better than American soccer players. Not just because they are just skill-wise better, but this is the reason why they'll be better is because of how they learn to play soccer. American soccer players are put into competition as early as possible. So basically, it's you learn these mechanical things in order to win a game. But if you look at the European and the Latin model, what they do is they put them in academies and they just put a ball at their feet. Instead of learning to compete, they learn to love the game of soccer. And so what you notice when you listen to a European or a Latin soccer player talk after a match, they talk about the game of soccer with a a certain love that American players often lack. And they're often better at playing soccer because they love the game. What Jesus is doing is giving us a new heart that longs to obey him. As we close the question is, is, do you have a new heart? And, and the, the diagnost, diagnostic question for you is this, is why should God accept you? Is it because you feel like you're pretty good, um, that you've tried hard enough? Or is it that you've received a new heart? If, see, if your answer is anything other than Jesus fulfilled the, everything you need to get to God through his life, his death, and his resurrection, and that's what you trust, I don't believe you've received that new heart. And we would love to talk with you about what that looks like to follow him. Do you tend to be more religious where you try to do the law on your own or do you tend to make the law your own? There's a third way and it's that Jesus is calling us to live this fulfilling life where the law shows us the depth of our sin and our need for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you that you gave your very life for us. We thank you that, that justice was done at the cross, uh, that you paid the penalty of our sin. And we look forward to a day when all things will be made just and all things will be made right. And so God, we, we thank you that you're, you, don't, you don't skimp on your law. Uh, you, don't, uh, you don't put things away because God, that would be unjust. And so God, we thank you that 
in doing so, you, you fulfilled the law both in how you lived it out, but also in how you paid the penalty on our behalf. And so because of that, God, we pray that with new hearts, we would be people who seek the good of our neighbors, that we would bring flourishing and shalom to our city. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen.